Today's reading, which uh, Catherine was talking about this morning, comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, beginning at verse 2 through to 13. The Transfiguration. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they all were alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, is it good for us to be here? Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from that cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they were no longer they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, Why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first. Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come and they have done to him everything they wished just as it is written about him. This is the word of the Lord. As we come to the message of God, will you pray with me? Father God, be present with us and surround us with the knowledge of your love. Jesus Christ, word of God, speak your truth through me so that my words might be not mine but yours. Spirit of God, move our hearts to accept your teaching and be changed, moulded into your new creation. Amen. A few years ago, probably about ten years ago now, my family went on a family holiday in the Barossa Valley. The Barossa's obviously not a huge distance away compared to some of the other places we've been to. It's really right next door, isn't it? but it was just a bit of a getaway for a week or so during the summer. wasn't, I would say, the most memorable holiday. I'm not really one for wine tasting, but it was nice to just relax. One of my main memories from the trip, though, was actually a slightly disappointing one. Most of you know my dad. used to be a part of this congregation. He and Mum visited a few weeks ago. Let me tell you, I'm pretty glad he's not here today. (laughs) and actually he should be really glad he's not here today because uh, he doesn't come out of this looking too good (laughs) see one one night when we were at the Barossa we went to the 40s cafe in Angiston not sure if anyone's ever heard of that 
It's a really nice restaurant, does all kinds of food, but what it's really famous for is pizza. At the time we went there, it had just won a competition for the best pizza in all of Australia. So, of course, everyone loves pizza, we all know that. So we were all pretty excited to try it out. So as you do at restaurants, we sat down at the table, picked out what we wanted. I was pretty simple, just a ham and pineapple, please. And this was the sort of restaurant where you order at the counter. So Dad went up to order for us. So they cooked them up, brought them out, set our fates before us, and everyone had the most delectable-looking pizza in front of them except me. What was on my plate was a big, fat, juicy chicken parmigiana. <laughs> now, I love chicken parmigiana. It's what I order at restaurants nearly all the time. Anyone who's ever eaten out with me knows I really can demolish one. And that's where I guess Dad made the mistake. Either he didn't hear me properly when I said what I wanted and just assumed, or he forgot or just went on autopilot ordering for me what I always had. But this was different, wasn't it? This is the best pizza place in all of Australia and I wanted to see what the fuss was about. And now I was going to miss out. <coughs> it's okay, it's okay. The palmy was good, it was really good. And I wasn't mad at Dad, not really. I think I had to stop him from asking the service to take back the palmy and get me a pizza instead. He was really sorry about it, but it happens. The point is, though, Listening to me tell this story, hearing about this place that is apparently the best pizza place in the country, it's not the same as actually having a pizza from there, is it? It's just an idea in your heads. To really get the experience of what I'm talking about, you'd have to drive up to Angerston, walk into the Forties Cafe and order one for yourself and try it out. From what everyone told me, for what it's worth, it more than lives up to the rep- reputation. But even I only have their word to go by. Never actually got to try a pizza there. Maybe I will one day. It's one thing to be told something is amazing, beautiful, praiseworthy. It's quite another to experience it yourself with your own five senses. And that's very much the case with God as well, isn't it? Every one of us, whether we've been going to church all our lives or if we've just stepped through the doors for the first time, have heard things about God, good things that we're supposed to believe. God is good. God is faithful. God is powerful, almighty. God heals. God saves. God loves us. We might even believe those words. We might come to church because we trust what we've heard and think it's the right thing to do to come here. And that's all well and good. But when we actually experience the truth of those words, when we feel and perceive God's goodness and power and glory, that's something different entirely, isn't it? If you felt that joy and peace of God would flood through you after praying a prayer, if you've been supernaturally healed by God, if he's turned your life around and freed you from things that have held you back, anyone who's experienced those things will tell you there is nothing like it. 
It's the difference between believing that the pizza is good and tasting it yourself. Taste and see that the Lord is good, so the scripture says. In Christian circles, we often call things like that mountaintop experiences. You might have heard that term before. And it comes from stories from the Bible like this one Trevor just read for us, where people go up to the top of a mountain and have a special experience with God there, one that they never forget, which permanently changes their perspective. In this one, Jesus' closest disciples, Peter, James and John, they see Jesus' appearance changed or transfigured in front of them. His clothes become blinding white, and two very famous Old Testament figures, Moses and Elijah, appear and are talking with Jesus. Why Moses and Elijah? We'll get to that a bit later. But a bit of context is needed here first. This story kicks off Mark chapter 9. In the very previous scene at the end of Mark chapter 8, Jesus asked his disciples who they thought he was, and Peter declared for the first time that he believed Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. And from that moment, everything changed. It was at that point that Jesus, who had previously been doing ministry of what life with God was meant to be like, what the kingdom of God was like, he began to teach his disciples personally that he would suffer and die and be raised to life and that they too would have to suffer and take up their cross. In other words, this began Jesus and his disciples' journey to the cross and their first stop, the mountain. Which raises a question for us, doesn't it? What does a mountaintop experience of the glory of God have to do with Jesus' death on a cross? Why is it necessary? Why are Peter, James and John brought to see this as a matter of urgency as soon as they know who Jesus is? We'll answer this by looking at three different aspects of God's glory which show in this passage both on the mountain and after they come down from it. The first of which is the fear of glory. Secondly, there's the way to glory. And finally, the death of glory. So, the fear of glory. This is interesting, isn't it? When you think of people having an amazing encounter with God, maybe people you know who have had that kind of experience, or if you've had it yourself, being afraid, being scared, frightened, it's not something you instinctively expect, is it? And yet it happens here. Peter and his companions are frightened, so frightened that Peter doesn't even know what to say. He speaks without thinking. And before we forget, this isn't the only time this happens in the Bible. Christmas isn't very long past yet, so we probably all still, the story of the shepherds is fresh in our minds. They were terrified when the angel appeared to them to tell them about Jesus. You might think of Isaiah and his vision where he saw God. He was sure he was going to die because he'd seen the Lord. And even Moses, speaking with God and asking him to show Moses his glory, 
God would not allow Moses to see his face. And why? No one may see me, he says, and live. God's glory is fearsome. It's pure and holy and it can't coexist with mortal flesh, with people who sin and fall short of that glory as we all do. To see that glory as good and beautiful and amazing as it is, it would kill us. <coughs> In the Old Testament laws, which everyone present would have followed and been aware of, the way God's glory and people's sin was mediated was through what was known as the tabernacle, a tent in which the Ark of the Covenant was kept and God's presence, his glory, dwelt. Later, when they entered the land, they built a temple and the temple played that role. But the idea was the same. There was this tabernacle and any number of rules and rituals and sacrifices were needed and priests had to be appointed just to bridge that gap between God and his people. I point this out because when Peter says, let's put up three shelters for you, Moses and Elijah, as Catherine said earlier, this might seem kind of ridiculous or like he's speaking out of his proverbial, but the reason why he says that is that the Greek word that gets translated as shelter is actually the same word that means tabernacle. The wonders of translation, though. So what Peter's saying isn't really that strange at all. What he's saying is God's glory is here and we need something to protect us so we won't die. We need tabernacles. He fears God's glory and rightly so is looking for a way to access that glory that won't kill him and his companions. Which brings us to the second point, the way to glory. So Peter's seeking God's glory through tabernacles, the only way he knows. But God, of course, has something different in mind. See what happens next in response to Peter's words. Firstly, a cloud appears and covers them and a voice comes from it. Where have we seen that before? In Exodus, when Moses spoke to God on behalf of the people, God spoke to him out of the cloud, giving him the covenant and the commandments and the laws, telling him the way for the people to safely live with God with them, with God's glory. Now God does the same thing again, speaking to Peter out of the cloud. And what does he say this time? This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And then the cloud disappears and they see nobody. Moses is gone. Elijah is gone. Only Jesus is left. And what do you think that's supposed to tell us? Jesus is the way to glory, the true way, the only way. Everything else that was supposed to mediate between God and humanity, the tabernacle, the sacrifices, the law of Moses, the words of prophets like Elijah, all of them were pointing towards Jesus. When all the other things fade away, He's the one left. 
when Moses spoke with God, you can read in Exodus chapter 34, he then had to veil his face from the people because his face would shine simply from reflecting God's glory. By contrast, Jesus' brightness at his transfiguration wasn't even a reflection. He was God's glory, manifest in a human being. He wasn't reflecting the light, he was shining it. And Peter, James and John, unlike Moses, unlike any other human up to that point, they were able to look upon the glory of God in Jesus Christ and live to tell the tale. Jesus is the way, the only way, that we can truly experience God's glory, that we can taste and see that the Lord is good. And it would be perfectly satisfying if the lesson ended there, wouldn't it? Peter, James and John certainly would have thought so, I think. But then they come down from the mountain and reality hits before they even get back to civilization. Jesus orders them not to tell anyone what they've seen until, quote-unquote, the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And Jesus has already been telling his disciples over the last few chapters that he's about to die. Bit of a crash down to earth, isn't it? To earth, isn't it? How can Jesus possibly die if he's supposed to be the only way to God's glory? Wouldn't that be a terrible thing, a failure? It certainly would have seemed so to the disciples and that's where they would have been discussing what Jesus meant by this, thinking perhaps hoping he was being figurative about it. And so they come to him with a question about Elijah. We've already seen how Moses fits into the story, how Moses got the covenant from God that was ultimately pointing towards Jesus. But what was Elijah doing there? Elijah's another Old Testament prophet. You can read about him in the first book of Kings. But what the disciples were asking about was actually a prophecy from the book of Malachi at the very end of the Old Testament. In fact, it's almost the very last verse from it. God promises to send Elijah again to prepare the way before the day of the Lord comes. So the disciples are thinking, okay, we literally just saw Elijah up there. That means the day of the Lord is coming soon, right? Everything's going to be put right. So there should be no reason, no need for Jesus to die. And no doubt that's what they would have been hoping to hear. But Jesus' reply is, of course, to be sure Elijah does come first and restores all things. But why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? I tell you, Elijah has come and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. It's left unclear in Mark, who tells us a bit of a shorter version of the story, but in the story in Matthew, which goes into a bit more detail, it's explained that Jesus was talking about John the Baptist, the one who baptised Jesus and prepared the way for him, who by this point in time had actually been executed. He'd been beheaded. 
So Jesus is saying, yes, Elijah, that is John, came to prepare the way for me and they killed him, just like they're going to kill me, just like the prophet said they would. This is the reality of the matter. God's glory in the form of Jesus is going to die. So does that then detract from the experience Peter, James and John just had on the mountain? Does it make that time worth less or falsify it somehow? Of course it doesn't. Elijah was a part of that experience, just as Moses was. The death of glory is a necessary part of that glory. That's what the disciples needed to learn. As Jesus embarked on his journey to the cross, his first priority was to prepare his disciples in every way he could for what was to come. That meant showing them the fearsome glory of God in a way no human could ever have survived. It meant demonstrating to them that he was the only way to enter that glory, to enter the great dance as Jonathan spoke to us about last week. He is the way. And it also meant impressing upon them that in order for that to happen, that glory must first be rejected, suffer and die. Those of us who have had mountaintop experiences will tell you each and every time that when they came down from that experience, life was still as tough as ever. I know someone who received a miraculous healing in this very church, which had a profound impact on his faith. He's had many other health issues since then that have not been healed in that way. Yet his faith remains strong and that healing is something he still talks about with wonder. When we have these experiences of God's goodness to us, what they do is prove God's faithfulness to us, that he is indeed who he says he is and does what he says he will do. And that assurance then strengthens us to face those situations where there will be hardship and sorrow and the pain will not miraculously disappear. We no longer fear the death of glory because we know there will be a resurrection. So have you experienced God in that way? Have you tasted and seen? Have you been up the mountain? If not, then that's nothing to be afraid of. Peter, James and John already believed in Jesus before they went up the mountain. But just as it was a necessary part of Jesus' journey to the cross and the journeys of Peter and the other disciples, so it is necessary for everyone, for all of us, to be strengthened and encouraged to face the trials to come. And believe me, they will come. They come for everyone. <coughs> we didn't include this in the reading because it would have made it too long, but as soon as Jesus, Peter, James and John get back down from the mountain, they find the other disciples having trouble with a demon-possessed boy and teachers of the law are arguing with them. 
No one can figure out why the demon won't leave the boy. Everyone's tried everything. But then the boy's father tells Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus drives out the demon himself. Everyone else, the disciples and the teachers, were confident in their own power. The father was the only one to admit his weaknesses, his doubts, and ask for help. And a miracle happened. God's glory was made manifest. So if you haven't experienced God's glory, even if you're not so sure there is a God or if he's good, or if you have had experiences like that but you feel your courage faltering and you need him to fill you again, perhaps that's a prayer you can pray. I believe. Help my unbelief. May the God of the mountain and of the valley grant you all that is needed for your journey ahead as you take up your cross and follow him. Amen.